Welcome to the fifth episode of the Anxious Poets podcast. I am the Anxious Poet, Adrian Scott. This is a longer episode. You might want to listen to it in chunks. Um, My good friend Patrick Ryan and I, uh, we met on a rites of passage that I was helping to organise and he came on and we developed a friendship based on our own journeys. And we got to talking about the similarities in our in our experiences with childhood loss, um, grief and loss in childhood, and thought it might be a good thing to explore uh, on a podcast that vulnerability that we both carry, in the hope that it helps people um, who carry those vulnerabilities or who have children who have suffered those or or just want to understand a bit more about how childhood loss affects people. Um, Patrick uh, is a, he was a barrister and now he trains people to do barristering. Um, so he's an articulate man, but also he carries his wounds well. And, um, and, and I really admire that about him. And he asked me to read this at the beginning of the podcast. Um, I, I asked him for a piece of poetry that uh, he felt was appropriate. Um, he writes good poetry himself, but but this is what he offered from the Four Quartets by uh, T.S. Eliot. What we call the beginning is often the end. And to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. We die with the dying. See, they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead. See, they return and bring us with them. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know it for the first time. Okay, so I've got my good friend Patrick Ryan here, and we wanted to explore kind of anxiety and... um, life's journey um, through the lens of of childhood loss um, which we both have experienced at different points in our lives it's correct isn't it yeah yeah Um, it struck me we were having a conversation a couple of months ago and it struck me that um, well we've had many conversations over the years and we've often talked about those two, that those two events in our lives, we've never really put them together and put them side by side and kind of looked at them and explored what they mean and yeah, what effect they've had. Yeah, and this it's <clears throat> necessarily vulnerable mm. um, to have to go back to things that are so uh, epoch-making in your life and and shaping. Um, so we'll tread carefully, I think. Yeah. Um, we better say what those losses are. So for me, um, I lost my dad when I was 11. Um, but he had a stroke when I was nine. Yeah. So my dad was born in 1910 and my mum was born in 1930. So there was 20 years difference between them. Um, and 
I was born when my dad was uh, about 51, 52, which is a shock to me in itself, just the thought of having a child at that age. Mm. <clears throat> um, I wonder how he managed that. But my mum was in her 30s. Um, and he's been through the war. He'd been uh, sunk on an aircraft carrier in 1942 in the Indian Ocean um, and escaped just with his life. Broke his back twice in the tropics. Um, falling down ship's ladders, I think. Um, and then smoked heavily, 30 a day. I remember. I don't remember him not having a cigarette in his hand. <clears throat> and he liked to drink. Didn't drink all the time, but when he drank, he really went for it. Mm. Um, and so I, was, I can think a traumatised man in a lot of ways and had a, a bad stroke, a left-hand-sided stroke when I was nine. I remember it clearly. It was just after Christmas because we used to inhabit a different room in the house at Christmas. We went into the drawing room. My mum was rather grand with all these things. <laughs> And um, the Christmas tree was still up. And we'd been watching some programme about um, the Second World War. And it had Beethoven's Fifth ah. as its theme tune. Da -da -da -da. And I'd been drawing on the floor tanks and German soldiers and mm. things. And I went to show my dad. And he went, oh, that's good. And my mum looked at him and said, I think she thought he was messing about. Yeah. And... Um, the whole of his left side of his face had dropped. And then all hell broke loose. Yeah. Um, and I was bundled out of the room and an ambulance came. And then I didn't see him for six months, uh, six weeks. He was in a hospital just up the road called Lodge Moor, a rehabilitation for stroke victims. And you were never taken to And then didn't take me to see him, no. Um, and then he, they brought him home. Um, but he was never the same man, obviously. And then... He seemed to be getting quite a lot better, and then and then he had a massive heart attack one evening while I was on holiday with my grandma in Norfolk and, and died. Um, and I was just on the cusp of going to secondary school, I remember. So that was, yeah, <clears throat> one of those events that... So you weren't even at home when it happened? No. No, part of what characterises the grief and the loss for me is absence of all kinds. Mm. So that business of not seeing him from when he had the stroke to him coming home, my constant question was, does his face look better? Um, and when he came home, so my mum, I came home from school and my mum said, um, there's a surprise for you upstairs. We lived on this four story house and I thought, oh, they've got me a puppy. Um, I'd been going on about having a dog and I ran upstairs and it was my dad and he was laying on the settee and he burst into tears and I didn't know what to do. Mm. I felt really uncomfortable and felt really guilty that what I really had wanted was a dog. <laughs> <clears throat> and I was pleased to see him but he was obviously quite disabled mm. and the stroke had really unlocked his emotions. Um, I just didn't know what to do with someone weeping like that. I'd never done that before. <clears throat> and he was a much more sedentary part of the house after that. And then when he died, like I say, I was on holiday in Norfolk with my grandma and 
a policeman came to the door and I knew this was not good news. But they said to me, oh, your dad's ill. And there was no phone. That's why the policeman came. Um, we have to go up to the local farm and call. And we walked up there. And I, I just knew. In fact, no, they went up there. And my great uncle Reg sat with me. And it went on for so long that he said, um, let's walk up and meet them. Mm-hmm. And I remember my grandmother coming ahead of the others and my uncle lagging back and me meeting my grandma and her saying, I've got something awful to tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, your, uh, your dad's died. And, yeah, and everything fell apart. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't go to the funeral. Um, they thought it was best that I stay down there with my grandma. Mm. And that was just really difficult. I, no, they didn't do it for bad reasons, mm. but it made life for me. I used to have dreams that he reappeared in the house, that it was all a mistake. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's my, yeah. that's my story. Gosh, uh, that's just some of the parallels just, uh, just struck me, and I'll... And I'll I just tell my story and, and see if the see, see, see if the and if the, if the echoes are there for you as well. Uh, so when uh, when I was very little, when I was eleven months old, my uh, mum mum was pregnant with a with a second child, and she became very ill during the pregnancy and went into hospital. And my uh, younger brother was born. Very early, this was 1982, 1983, and he was born at just over 30 weeks, which was, uh, in those days, very, very, um, very, very early. Mm. And babies didn't normally survive at 30 weeks, and indeed they didn't think he would. Uh, And for two or three days they kept expecting at any moment that he would would die. And at one point they, they took him over to the children's hospital in Liverpool from where they were in Birkenhead, and then they, they made my mum go, even though she was very ill, because they thought he might not survive oh, uh, the journey across, let alone anything else. And he kept surprising them and kept uh, kept surviving. Hmm. And then he came home uh, after about six months. So he was in hospital for six months. Wow. Um, and he came home for about three years. And <laughs> he was... Uh, he was very poorly, so he used to have to have injections every day. But to me, anyway, he he looked. He didn't. There wasn't. There was nothing that I could see physically. So I would have been when he came home. I would have been eighteen months old, so very very yeah. small. Yeah. But as we grew up, and he was at home for three years, so I would have been mm. uh, at the end of his life. I was four and a half. He was three and a half. Um, he went to nursery when when he got old enough to go to nursery. He with there's pictures of us riding bikes together. You know, he was physically able to do lots of things. He used to wear, used to wear funny glasses because he couldn't see very well. But he was, uh, and by all accounts from from uh, those kind of family tales that then get handed down, I think when hmm. when somebody's died, there's, there's a, uh, yeah, you get those, those oft-repeated tales. So there was an oft-repeated tale that we used to share a bedroom. My parents would come in and find that, We'd had a dummy each, but um, by the time my parents came in, I had no dummies, and he had both. He had one in his mouth, and he'd just taken the one off me. And um, and he was something of a of a force of nature. Um, mm. He went to nursery, and 
um, when they found him uh, in the in the in the toilet, those little cubicle toilets at nursery, mm -hmm. with his head wet, um, he having put his own head down the toilet. They asked him what he'd done. He said, "I needed a hair wash." Uh, <laughs> so he, you know, he he really really rang as much as he could out of mm -hmm. a short time, and then one evening, quite suddenly, um, I, he he woke up and. He would fit from time to time, so he used to he used to he used to have fits, and he was having a fit, and uh, and they called the doctor, and the GP came. Uh, this uh, middle of the night, um, and I remember being quite disoriented by the whole thing. You know that thing where lights go on suddenly, yeah, and yeah, half asleep, yeah. And I can remember seeing the doctor on the stairs. I remember him was a guy mm. called Ben Davis, and he had a big beard, mm. and um, I remember seeing him in our house and and being ushered somewhere else, and he went into hospital. And I didn't see him again. Uh, ever, ever. He oh went into God. hospital, and two, th two, three days later, uh, not responsive. And my parents had to make the terrible decision oh about turning off a turning off the machines that were keeping him alive. Mm. Um, and and I remember the morning. I remember the next morning. It's funny the things you remember. It is. Um, <laughs> I would, we were we were taken to some friends. I was my because my sister was born by the time my sister was six months old at this point. Oh my goodness! Um, and we were taken to a friend's house. I remember the door being opened and these kids who were covered in chocolate. <laughs> it was obviously it was, a, it, was, it, was it was November, so it can't have been. I um, know uh, it wasn't. It was May. It was it was, it was May. Um, and they they but they. they, they Chocolate buns have melted them. These kids covered in chocolate, and that's the image I have of that day. Um, it's being dropped. It's being dropped off there, and then and I never, never was never taken to the hospital to go and see him. And I, I kind of understand the reasons for, for yeah, that. Of but I, but as soon as you said I wasn't there when it happened, I was like, oh yeah, <sighs> that's that's that that sense, and the. Um, at the funeral, uh, so my, my my grandma, who'd come to look after me um, when my mum was in hospital for a long time, when, when Peter was very small, uh, came up and, and I don't remember the funeral, but family friends have told me who were there mm -hmm. that I was basically wrapped up by my grandmother and, and, and nobody was getting near me as far as she was concerned. Mm -hmm. And I didn't then go on to the... They went on to, to the cemetery for, right. where, where he was cremated. Um... And I know I didn't go to that. And yeah, just those fleeting, fleeting images uh, are what I are what I have a have a sense memory of. But what I what I remember what what, what you said that rang true was that um, that sense of just how. Uh, just how tenuous that that line between life and death. Yeah, and just absolutely. how I think when you get a when perhaps even more so as a child when you get when you get a a sense of it and not knowing what what death is. I, I, I you know four and a half. I I, no. I don't think I'd have had any concept of what that meant. All I know was that I'd woken up one morning and and this little person who you know who I shared a room with never came back again. Um, hmm. But living for that three years, as, as you were talking about here, you know, between your dad's stroke yeah, and his death, yeah, living yeah. living with somebody in the house who, you know that they're they're different. Exactly. You know that their special care is mm. taken of them, and and uh, 
for all, um, you know, Peter's kind of uh, running around, you know, I used to watch my parents give him injections. God, he used to hate it. Um, and used to tell them that he hated it as well. Yeah. Um, but he was different to, yeah. to, 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 to other kids of the classes yeah. and the injections and the fits and those kinds of things. He knew that that wasn't normal, normal. in inverted commas, whatever, yeah. whatever that means. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that feeling of being somehow edged away from normal mm. and therefore sequestered um, in, a, in a different world... Mm. You know, my friends' dads were all younger and quite healthy. Mm. Um, it was it, it. It was it was it set you apart somehow. Mm. Um, and then when he died, although he'd been a naval officer and my mum got a widow's pension, we weren't that well off. Mm. Um, we lived in a great big house in Totley, which is a nice leafy part of Sheffield. But the only way she could make it pay was to take four teacher training students each year. And they lived with us for the whole of the term time, um, which I loved, as a, and they were girls at first um, when I was a little lad. So yeah. they used to kind of practice their teaching stuff on me and everything, <laughs> and it was then take me out, and it was lovely. But, but I think for my mum... It must have been a real... Tr and my grandma came to live with us. Mm. In fact, I think my grandma already did live with us. Um, I can't imagine now how hard that time must mm. have been for her. But I had that feeling... You know, I got free school dinners after that. Mm. I remember them, little blue dinner tickets. They were a different colour to everybody else's and you had to go and collect them. Mm. Um, and I got free school uniform. This is in the era of yeah. when we had a welfare state, and um, <laughs> it, it, I felt different. And I remember getting into a fight with a kid. Um, he was called Anton Milner, <laughs> <laughs> and and it was a verbal spat. Mm. It wasn't, for, although it, I think it turned physical after he said what he said. And he said, "Well, you know what you are, don't you?" And I was like, "No." said you're a bastard you haven't got a father Ooh. and I remember thinking at the time is that what that means mm. <laughs> but seeing red at the same time mm. and all my other mates kind of you know when when people club around you yeah. and are like we're gonna have him yeah um but it stung you know it went right into that point of yeah I am different mm. um but, but, I mean, a much deeper kind of message that came to me from it was you can't trust life. Mm. It's going to pull the rug from under you. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've really responded to what you said about I didn't know what death was. Mm. Neither did I. Mm. And I didn't have any... Uh, we didn't have... We didn't grow up in, as a church-going mm. family were nominally Church of England. My dad was a Freemason, um, which always confused me. But um, there was no narrative or, or story yeah. as to... You know, I hear people say, oh, when someone died, I asked my mum, and she said, oh, they've gone to heaven. Mm. I don't ever remember anyone saying any of that. Mm. Death was a kind of awful thing. Yeah. I mean, my grandma said it. I've got something awful to tell you. Yeah. 
it was just an awful thing and 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 like any lovely family they they were traumatized by it um all of them my mum my auntie i was an only child my grandma so they're all women were all equally traumatized mm. and um and also did what all families do you know made the best of it yeah i remember the christmas after my dad died so that was august the 7th um that Christmas, them really making a big effort, mm. um, but that tense, tortured, slightly mm. difficult yeah. enjoyment, um, and and just feeling somehow something really fundamental had been undermined. Mm. Um, I don't know how how what that meant for you, but. Um. I absolutely identify with the feeling. One thing that struck me when when you, you were a lot younger, I was a lot. Uh, yeah, I was four and a half when it when it happened. But I and I and I and as I say, I don't have a great many memories, but I do share that sense of being a part mm. as after that mm. of of a of wanting <coughs> of 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 needing a distance from in order to be safe somehow. Um, we we did go to church. We were a Catholic family, mm. and and I did get the Peter's gone to heaven. All right, right. I remember that because that was and and uh, we went to we went to a, a, a church that was kind of a Victorian building, and it had a had as lots of churches do had those kind of um, uh, timber uh, tim, tim, timber frame in the in the roof within the with the UGC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you could there were access points. Into the roof that you could that was set in, oh, and I assumed that was where heaven was. <laughs> I thought, well, because I, somebody must have at some point pointed. I thought, well, that must be where he is. That must be where people go. Because I knew that dead people came into church, and because I'd been at the funeral and came into, in coffins, and and I didn't know where else they went because I'd not been and I'd never made this connection. Where I'd not been to the next place, which was the crematorium, where 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 that happened, and I just thought, well, if heaven's up there, that must be. Where where people go when when they when they die and 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 it was it was a number of, of sort of months that I held this view that that was all this thought <laughs> that that's what that you know if only we could open the loft hatches <laughs> you know he'd be able to come back or we'd be able to see him yeah. um, and I think so that yeah that that there was that sense of of where where have they gone well, what's the physical mm. change that's that that's happened and not understanding. So I, so I had this, this this sense of of uh, it was somehow important to to know, I think to have a physical place where it might be. The concept of of a heaven, yeah, was 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 too nebulous in in and of itself, and I think yeah that that stretching for that need for for certainty for some something to hang on to whether it whether it was just the roof panels that that might be that might be where it was um and i think that's characterized it's characterized a, a, a lot of things actually after thereafter so i i know that as an older child and, and as an adult i'm instinctively uncomfortable if i don't know where members of my close family are <laughs> Uh, 
if I um, and I I stay in touch with my and I, and I, and I look at other people and the, the amount of friends and 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 other people I know stay in contact with their family and, and I you know it will rarely be a whole week where I won't speak to uh, mm. my mum my dad my brother my, my two brothers and my sister sometimes a little bit wow. longer but but generally speaking I will find a time. Mm. Just to to check in with with, with each of them, um, and that's always been, and it's it's I mean that's been quite debilitating at, at times. And I, I know when I was in in school, for example, my mum started going out to work. Mm. I found that very difficult. Not mm. I, 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 the, the knowledge that she was at home was okay. As soon as she started moving mm. out of the home, and I and I would do things, so I would have. Headaches and in inverted commas, or something, <laughs> which required her then to come and pick me up from yeah. school, so I knew where she was, mm. and that kind, you know, that kind of lasted into my uh, sort of ten, eleven, twelve, into my into my early teens, mm. um, and that 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 sense of better just check is everybody <laughs> still where they're meant to be, and I think that's very old and goes back to that time of uh, yeah of a kind of. Well, I mean, you know, it can happen in the blink of an eye. You know, you go to bed one night and wake up, and that person's gone. I absolutely. I think that that <clears throat> there's an idea that that as human beings we have evil evolutionary kind of archaeology in our psyche that there are very deep old parts of us, instinctual parts mm. of us, um, like the fight flight instinct and all of those things, and then we have more highly developed so-called rational parts but I think in a lifetime there are primitive archaeological moments that are buried deeply within us from from what happened to us as we grow that that then unconsciously or consciously or both form inform so much of how we react to the world yeah. and I really resonate with that wanting to know my mum after my dad died so suddenly there'd been this seismic earthquake in my understanding of the world and of, and of what the world is capable of my mum because she was a you know what, what was she 30 odd years old uh, born in 1930 he was 19, she was 43 when he died so she was a young woman mm. and a couple of years later she started a relationship with another bloke which to a 13 year old was really threatening mm. um, I'd been the, the focus of so much of, of these three women my auntie was married but she's, you know, we saw her a lot Um and he was a very different guy to my dad. He was six foot two, Yorkshireman. My dad was a Geordie, um, black hair, mm. big fella. And he was the head of parks and gardens for Sheffield Council. You know, so he managed blokes and mm. and and he loved fishing. He used to take me fishing. But he liked drinking, and they would go out at, at eight o'clock in the evening. They wouldn't be in till the pub shut. And sometimes they go back to his place or whatever, or go out with friends. So she was suddenly, from never hardly ever going out, mm. was going out a lot. 
and I would just be beside myself with fear and would sit in my bedroom window. There was a, a hill behind the house that cars coming back would go down and that tended to be a route she came down or I'd go to the front of the house and watch the dual carriageway. But I would just move around the house watching and waiting for her to come home and I couldn't sleep until she got back in the house. And then suddenly all of that anxiety would evaporate. Mm. But I was also quite angry with her um, for putting me through this and would, would like you, feign all kinds of stuff to try mm. and stop her going out. Mm. It must have been really difficult for her at the time, but it just introduced this, this corrosive anxiety. Mm. Uh, and I can remember my grandma, um, um, I had this other auntie that wasn't really an auntie, you know, he had those. Um, anyone that was a <laughs> friend of the family was called yeah. an auntie. Auntie Doll, uh, who had also... Her husband was in the Navy, another lieutenant commander, and he died young. Mm. Uh, you know, that was a kind of product of the war. Uh, she said to my... They both said to my mum, you have no idea what he goes through when you're, you don't come home till late. Mm. Which probably wasn't the easiest thing for my mum to hear. And my mum would be like, you know, what are you worried about? And I, like, what? Mm. What am I worried about that you won't come home? Yeah. I don't want to be left alone. Mm. Um, uh, really difficult. Mm. Really difficult. And so I resonate with what you're saying about um, checking. Mm. Uh, and And just that. That f that anxiety about not being able to to control what was going on, yeah. feeling that it was all going on around you, and you you had no you had no say in it. Mm. I suppose that's part of it. Did you fear you might die? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to lie. No, no, no. I, <laughs> no, because I I mean that's where most a lot of my anxieties came mm. from. I remember being convinced. I mean, this sounds so stupid now. I, I got into bottle digging. I know. Um, we, we started to have male students. Once I hit puberty, I don't think it was... A, I thought it was a great idea to have young <laughs> students around. Young female students. So uh, we had men after that. Yeah. And we had this lad called Dave come, and he, he was really into going to old Victorian rubbish dumps and digging up old bottles and and I, I'd already been train spotting so you know I was ripe for another nerdy pastime um, and we'd go off to rubbish dumps yeah. and we went to one in Manchester and a dog licked, a stray dog licked me when I was eating my sandwiches and I convinced myself, I was about 15 mm. at the time, that I was got rabies mm. <laughs> ignoring the fact that rabies were not kind of very prevalent in this yeah. country um, <laughs> And and I can remember, I don't know where I'd read or I'd seen a TV programme, God knows what I'd been like with the internet, um, that it took six weeks for it to come out and for you to start developing yeah. hydrophobia. <laughs> and I would sit there looking at water thinking it's going to happen soon <laughs> and looking at my family and thinking, you're going to miss me, you know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I became very, yeah. um, very worried about my health. Yeah. Um, 
and and I even to this day my dad described the beginnings of his stroke as a pain in the side of his face mm. if I get a pain in the side of my face I'm like okay here we go yeah <laughs> and I can laugh but at the moment of it happening mm. health anxiety is terrible mm. um, I I'm can be really gripped with absolute terror mm. um, that this is this is the beginning of the end. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a long answer to it. No, no. I, I, How about I, you? I'm you? I was thinking as, as as you were talking, um, what 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 set me off with the question was because I, um, in idle moments, often find myself imagining myself at the funeral of other people. And I, 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 of other people, of other people, yeah, it's not like, yours, not, not, not so much mine. And I think because um, I think for coming, I think I always knew it was always obvious that Peter was different. Sorry, sorry, not seen him well and then seen no, him get better. No, I'd always, no. always seen him through. I think through 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 that lens of mm. of, 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 of of he was different, and I, and I knew I didn't have. So I didn't have the glasses. I didn't have fits. I didn't have injections. So I think I I, I knew so not rationally but instinctively somewhere that I. That, that that wasn't going to happen to me, but I, but I did become uh, fascinated. Perhaps the wrong word, but perhaps it's not. Um, of thinking about well, other people are going to die, yeah. and what's that going to be like? I better get ready. I think I think that's it. I better be ready. Yeah. I better be ready for when this happens at the next time because I was so unprepared. Unreal. The first time, and it, and it, and as as you said, that seismic event, no control over, just suddenly, bam, and that was it. Um, that I think my my response to that was, well, there'll be another funeral, there'll be another death, better be ready. What am you know? How am I going to be? What am I going to say? What am I going to do? That kind of thing, I think, was the was what I was. Imagine not my own, but when this hap- when this happens to me again, mm. and how can I be safe? What would it take to be safe this time? Um, you know, where where it to happen? And and did you work that out? What it no, would mean not clearly. Say? <laughs> not not clearly. I think I'm interested to use the word safe. Yeah, um, I think I not even think I spent a lot of time not not feeling safe mm. and not feeling that the world was a very trustworthy place. Yeah, yeah. Um, that you know these things can happen, you know, in the blink of an eye. And how can you trust a world where mm-hmm. you go to bed one night and, and wake up, or you, or you go on holiday and come back mm-hmm. and your dad's died, or you go to bed and you wake up in the morning, your brother's gone, and you never see him again? You know what kind of a world is that? Exactly. How, how do you have any any faith in anything mm. um, mm-hmm. after? And I, 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 I spent a, I spent a long time, I think. Looking for where those where those safe places might be. So yeah. I was quite sort of I was quite I imagine annoyingly religious when I when I was when I when I when I, when I was so younger. So I, I would uh, you know I, I would I was the kid at school who went to mass not just on a Sunday but also on a Wednesday morning. Oh, wow. And um, if the you know wow. uh, so I would I would I think a lot of that I was looking for. Yeah, is there some safety here? Is there some uh, and there's an attraction in the answer, isn't it? Where, you know, 
if you believe in God, then he's gone to heaven. Yeah. Um, at a, and, and I don't know what else you can tell a child at four or five. That's probably the only thing you, you can say. But I think that took up a lot of my, my yeah. bandwidth in, 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 in looking, looking to keep a connection alive through, through that somehow. I, I that's I found that interesting because so I didn't have any of that apparatus. <clears throat> My dad had a church funeral, but it was in the church that was next door to the house or near the house. But I never went, as I said, and then that was it. No, nobody went to church after that. Nobody talked about oh your dad's in heaven now. I mean they might have done, but it didn't make mm. any impact on me. I didn't. It wasn't. We didn't have a religious framework mm. of any kind. And and then of course. So my mum. Was given, tranquilizers, to help her cope. Mm. Valium, and, and she kept having them. Mm. For quite a long time after. Uh, then she met this guy, and then after a couple of years of them going out. He suddenly ditched her. Um, I think because, well, I don't know why, but I, I, I think it was to do with the fact that she wouldn't kind of pool her finances with his mm. because she felt somehow I deserved an inheritance. And they fell out. And and she fell apart mm. a bit more. And, and I think probably went back on tranquilizers then. And then she met this other guy who said, it was through a dating agency, who said he was divorced, but he wasn't. So he would come round a lot mm. and then suddenly disappear for two weeks and she'd ring him and his wife would answer. And she'd say to him, uh, who was that? And he'd say, oh, she was just visiting. Yeah. And she just gradually, I, I remember watching my mum fall apart mm. and she became morose. She was a woman of habit. She was... She cleaned every day. Mm. She and she stopped. She just sat. She wouldn't get dressed. Mm. She smoked cigarettes and drunk tea, and and became more and more depressed. And would constantly say to me, "You'd be better off without me," and all this kind of stuff. And oh. then she finally made a suicide attempt yeah. on a Sunday morning with sleeping tablets. And um, my me and my grandma found her mm. in the bedroom taking them. And, scoop them out of her mouth. There was a kind of comical moment where my grandma tried to scoop them out of her mouth and pulled out her false teeth at the same time. God. <laughs> you do remember those Yeah, kind of they're the things that ludicrous yeah. things. Uh, and they took us to hospital and they sorted her out. And I don't know what the period was, but after that she tried again. Same kind of thing. And <clears throat> the doctor said to her, look, I think you should go into hospital. And she agreed and it was a mental hospital. Mm. And she was there for about three, three, four months. And then basically they got her off all the drugs mm. and they did some kind of occupational therapy and, and therapy. Mm. <clears throat> and she pretty much recovered. But that period was another of those mm. where everything started shifting. Yeah. And the very thing that I'd been frightened of since I was 11, mm. of being left alone, became mm. a very distinct possibility. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, I mention all that because it, it, there was no framework. Mm. I was into progressive rock music 
uh, I love Genesis and Yes and ACDC. That's not so much progressive, but you know, I loved all that. Yeah. I had good mates that were into that, <clears throat> and I discovered Lord of the Rings. Mm. So I was on that kind of fantasy journey mm. in some ways, but there was nothing. There felt like there was no handholds. Yeah. Uh, especially when she had the breakdown, I felt really lost. So I was ripe mm. for some kind of religious experience. Mm. And as she began to recover, I left school and was working in a clothes shop, and I met this bloke who was a, both Catholic and involved in charismatic renewal. Um, so he had this very vibrant sense of God and Jesus and all this stuff, and I just that was it. I was, I, I, it was like everything I was looking for: certainty, yeah, you know, a very imminent God right mm. in front of you, talked to you, loved you, and and it for a while, I felt like it solved all my problems. Mm. So I, I get I was the kid I was then the person mm. who went to mass every day. Mm. They used to call me Holy Adrian. Even in this community <laughs> that was full of quite religious people, yeah. I, I just I think it was a, a bolster against anxiety. Yes. If I if I engage in this yes. hook line and sinker, then then perhaps I won't have to worry mm. about any of that stuff anymore. Um, and it worked for quite a long time. Yeah. Did it, uh, did it work for you? Yes. Um, in in the sense that it, it was one of the things that I think kept me putting one foot in front of the other for mm -hmm. a while. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I, I don't seem to be honest, it, it, was, it seemed tremendously important to me mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And to the point where I, where I, I thought at one point about... about um, Becoming a priest, uh, in fact, more than once, sort of me two too. occasions, they were wondering whether that that was there was something in the in the narrative or in the in the the readiness of the answer. The the all you have to do is it sounds strictly all you have to do is believe. Yeah, and then. Yeah. And then, because that, that because that what that narrative is, death has been overcome and yeah, death yeah. has been defeated, and you know that image of Nine Jesus the glory. on the exactly <laughs> Jesus on the cross has conquered death. King. Yeah, and then, and 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 that narrative was incredibly comforting. That this that is it, so yeah. that this 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 death thing that I encountered at four, which I had no categories in which to place it or no way in which to process it as, as, a, as a thing, as a, as a life event, um, was explained in some way, and it yeah. wasn't the end. So that's that, that, that Catholic Christian, death is not the end. Yeah. We say it to ourselves again and again, you know, death yeah. is not the end. We, but, you know, and that was incredibly comforting, I think. Um, that was what I think the attraction was, that, that narrative was, was holding me. Uh, and I... And it held me for as long as I needed it. So I think through sort of later later childhood and early adulthood, yeah, really important. And I think it became it became less important in that sense, and in, in in that in what in what role it was playing, as I as 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 I got older and. Um, yeah, 
I think started to need to need it less for that reason. Um, yeah, that would be. Yeah. Uh, it worked for the time I needed yeah, it to yeah, work. Yeah. Can I, it, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, I I'm, <clears throat> I'm kind of, I'm very interested in in what what narratives help us mm. to make sense of things and help to uh, alleviate some of those anxieties. Um, the interesting thing for me was there came a point where it didn't work anymore. Mm. Um, the, 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 some of those um, what were adolescent fears, mm. health anxiety, um, you know, f- feeling different feeling mm. somehow sequestered by an experience um, the 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 need to um, to 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 control things in some way to have practices or or you know that thing of ringing your family mm. or uh, they suddenly came back to me in my 50s um, a lot of those, it, but but not adolescent ones, adult ones. You know, I I had that big kind of attack of anxiety, and and that somewhat adolescent religious narrative, which was really powerful and comforting, and 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 worked for me in a lot of ways began to break down mm. and and left me questioning much more deeply you know what 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 am i really anxious about mm. you know and had that sudden onset of it what am i really anxious about and it was all those things again mm. it it was it was you know my own health that's how it came out in some ways. I was convinced that I had this terrible feeling of dread that there must therefore be something terribly wrong with me and <clears throat> trotted myself off to A&E on a regular basis. Mm. Um, and, and also being very nervous about everything, uh, very fearful about everything mm. uh, and about my place in the world. And I think what that's done for me is is kind of make me ask adult mm. look for adult mm. narratives and adult ways of 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 dealing with some mm. of that stuff um and and it's made me restless mm. and it, i think i hope it's made me creative um and i i'm really interested in it. there are a lot of creative people that you come across mm. who if you look at their biography you'll find a childhood loss. Mm. I've, I've just been to an exhibition of Don McCullen, who's a war photographer. Not just war, but a, a, a Britain. He's 83 now, and he's taken. he took some iconic photographs of mm. Britain in the 60s. But he lost his dad when he was young. Mm. His dad had uh, some kind of emphysema, and, and he watched him die. And, and it, it, it really... Mm. It, it was... It created a gap, mm. a, a, a fertile place inside him 
that he's always trying to fill yeah um and finding ways of doing that mm. so would you would that would that resonate with you that <clears throat> that it's, I, yeah so yes it does um and certainly the The gap, the, the the gap that's that's trying to be that 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 feels like it can never be filled, or always always feels like it needs f- um, filling, and I. And I didn't experience it particularly from a. From from the point of view of of, of creativity at, at at that point, but I. Experienced it to some extent in. A a. Couple of things. I need. I need. I think to be kind of need to be seen and heard. Being heard was was really important. So I um so I did quite. A lot, I did quite a lot of of uh, of singing. I used to sing in church. And I used oh, to right. sing in sing uh, sing on the stage. And I did did some acting, which is in itself no doesn't mark you out as as anything else. Um, loads and loads of people do yeah, acting yeah. and singing when when, when, when as, as they're growing up. And but I but for me what it was was. Um, that sense of when I when I was when I was when I was singing either either in church or or, or on stage or speaking, everyone was listening. There there, mm. there, there was that that was that attention. Mm-hmm. And I and I chose a first career that put me as a um, as a lawyer and as a as an advocate absolutely in the centre of a crucible where when I was speaking. The rest of the room was was, so was largely a, quiet. An advocate is a barrister. An advocate as, as a barrister, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, I, I didn't I didn't go into it consciously. And go that's the career I want because I want to set want to be a career where no, I can no. stand and, and 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 be listened to. But I, um, but I, looking back on it, I'm absolutely sure that was what I what I needed. Uh, some sort of control of the environment again is coming back to that kind of. How do I wrestle back control from this very unsafe place? Well, if I'm the person yeah, who's speaking, yeah, yeah. if I'm the person at the centre of it, if I'm the person they're watching, then I'm in control of this bit. Uh, um, it's an illusion, and <laughs> uh, and 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 a costly one. But I think that was what the what the what the drive was, and I think that was what where my uh, it was a need it was a need for to have some control of around around the situation. Um, and some ability, some feedback that I was being heard and being seen. I think that heard was, and seen. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, does that resonate with you? Does that? It does. Yeah, it does. I'm just, I'm just really kind of speculating as to whether when you have some of these childhood experiences. That what you feel you're becoming, is is unheard and unseen. Mm. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from that, mm. for all of us. Um, that that you do feel so out of control. Mm. Not going to my dad's funeral, I felt unheard and unseen. Mm. Um, and and one of one of my issues if you like is I don't pay enough attention to what's happened to me Mm. if I can run on from it as quick as possible Mm. um, 
and people so sometimes the way I describe some of the things that have happened in my life people go but you talk about that very easily mm. you know and I can be quite articulate about it but it is a way of running away from it or mm. running on from it mm. I remember I broke my arm when I was 16 on my mum's birthday I fell over the handlebars of my bike uh, and I stood up and my arm was quite deformed mm. and I, I, there was this young lad and I went am I alright and he said I think you've broken your arm and I'd already fainted once when I did it. And I looked down and fainted again and jumped <laughs> up again and ran home <coughs> like some frightened animal. Mm. Um, and it was almost like I want to run on mm. from this difficult experience. Mm. And and so part of, of, of trying to find some kind of better equilibrium mm. is, has been saying... No, don't minimise how... I, I remember telling my therapist at one point about my mum having mm. commit, trying to commit suicide, take her own life. And she burst in... Well, she didn't burst into it, but she wept. Mm. And I was thinking, she, why, why aren't I? Yeah. But it is that... I, I sort of felt unseen and unheard. Mm. And that... Well, and also we had that narrative that comes from the war of you just get on with mm. it. I remember saying to my mum, how did you deal with being evacuated? And then and then actually coming back into London and living through the place. Well, you just got on with it. Yeah. That's a powerful narrative yeah. in our family. And and so that that I'm really interested in that feeling of wanting to be heard, wanting mm. to be seen. Yeah, and I mean I trained five and a half years to be a priest. Mm. I've always wanted to be heard and seen. Mm. But it, it it's that moment when, when you actually are being heard and seen and you think, oh, actually, what do I want to be heard and seen about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What I really want to be heard and seen about are things that happened a long time ago. Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you grieved as a child? No. No. Not as much as I... Oh, I don't know. I didn't. Mm. I didn't. Because there was this whole thing, I didn't want to upset my mum. She didn't want to upset me. I didn't want to upset her. Yeah. So some of these things became not taboos, but not talked about. Mm. Um, I remember about six weeks after my dad died, <clears throat> wanting to go to a rugby lessons with my mates. Mm. And she wouldn't let me, because I was a terrible one for taking up things and then not doing them. Mm. And I absolutely burst into tears yeah. and was distraught. And I can remember looking at me like, it's rugby, what are you, what's wrong yeah. with you? You don't even like rugby. And then I think it twigged mm. that this was not about that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm quite adept at displacement grief. Mm. I can cry at other things. Yes. Actually really grieving, I'd... I, it was it was a long time after. Mm. Yeah, I. That that displacement grief that that so I'm famous in my family for bursting into tears at a at a, at a sad film or a soppy yeah. song or you know and something that something and nothing you know um, and Sarah will you know we're watching TV Sarah will have to look over you know, even even the mildest emotion appears on television are you crying <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a, it's a family joke. But it was displacement because for years, 
I was terrified of crying. Yeah, And I would do anything to avoid it. And I developed this really weird reflex where I'd make myself laugh rather than cry. Really? Yeah, very much so. And um, and people, you know, and and people say, "Why, why are you laughing? This is really sad." And it, it would not be because I was finding it funny, but because that was my. Mm. There needed to be some physical reaction, but I would not <clears throat> allow myself to cry. And and I think there was a sense of, I think I, I think I feared that if I, I if I started, I wasn't sure whether I could stop. Yeah. That mm. the well of it. Mm. I still feel that. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I do as well from, from, from time to time that that sent those times when I've kind of come into contact with it and touched it and thought this could and it never does last for but but that no. feeling and that, and that that old fear of maybe this will just maybe I'll just go on crying yeah um, I, for me also I think to really cry about it would be to admit it was really true yeah. which is a really hard thing yeah. I, I I think the dreams of my dad returning mm. and everyone saying, oh, it, yeah, it was all a big mistake, mm. you know, a yearning for that. I think really grieving meant mm. saying, yes, this has really happened. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's, it, it, we're so complex, I think, in the way that we, we store things. Mm. And we store them, they're all stored in the body. Mm. Um, they're all stored in our psyche, in our unconscious, mm. and and there's this whole complexity um, that's going on inside us that we don't understand, mm. but is constantly finding its way out of mm. us. Um, and I, I I've felt that part of the the way of of handling my mental health issues. Is, is to pay way more attention to that complexity mm. and to to the different narratives that are going on inside me and what my body is doing. Um, and and we were talking about earlier that lovely line of Mary Oliver where she says, you, don't, you do not have to be good, you do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting, you only have to let the soft animal of your body mm. love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine mm. meanwhile she says and then she goes in this fantastic evocation of the natural world continuing meanwhile although you're going through all this mm. there's this world out there that in some ways isn't really that interested <laughs> but is deeply you're deeply connected mm. to and the wild geese are flying home mm. announcing your place over and over in the family of things I think I think there's that journey that that this I remember writing a poem I might put it at the end of this podcast um, that had the refrain Father why have you forsaken me mm. that Jesus says on the cross and it was all about my dad and I wrote it when I was at university um, recognising that it that that loss created a gap, a space of fallow soil, I think I called it, where things could be planted. Mm. It's constantly shaped me in, in, in trying to make sense of what the hell all this mm. is all about. Mm. Um, 
I don't know whether you feel that, that it's shaped you in ways that you don't even yeah. kind of get yet. No, I, I, I absolutely I'm sure I'm sure it has. I I'm sure that the that spending quite a lot of my um twenties and thirties in particular really trying to to discover to discover who I was, to discover what what these things inside me were meant, what 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 was that need to um, yeah. to, 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 to be in control of things, what was that need to and how did that relate to, to those early experiences and that, that, that early and that early trauma. Um, I think it's absolutely down to that. I, I think almost like a like a sort of searching for the source of the river as it were. That, mm. that kind of what's how far back do I have to go to mm. find mm-hmm. this to, 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 to find the thing that maybe to find the thing that sets me apart why, why do I feel why did I feel for a long time yeah. that I that I was a part and actually wanted to be a part that mm. I that I was yeah. unconsciously doing things that meant that I would avoid um, getting close to people choosing relationships which from any objective and outside perspective were doomed to failure <laughs> from a very early standpoint. Um, Did you have that feeling that you'd meet people and think, they just don't get the world? Yes. You don't get the world, don't get me. I, uh, yeah, I, both. Yeah. They haven't had this happen to them. Mm. In Harry Potter, if, if, you, if you've had someone close to you die, mm. you can see the Thestrals, mm. these ghostly apparitions of horses that draw the carriages that take them up to Hogwarts. Mm. I thought that was a really clever... Mm. I remember thinking, I could see Thestrals. <coughs> From the age of 11, yeah. I could see that this world wasn't what the people who haven't had this happen to them think it is. Yeah, And it, it made me feel slightly superior at times. Mm. But it also made me feel different. Yeah, And, it, and, and all of those things you've just said... Um, it, it it set you apart mm. and gave you a different view of the world and put you on a different track in some ways. Mm. Um, mm. I think I... I think I developed a sense, again, probably in trying to some extent to make sure that I was never too close to somebody... Um, mm. To, to 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 be in that position again of of the world turning on a sixpence. Uh, I think I um, I think I think I think I decided for myself to to, to do that that, that uh, as you said made made me special that that experience and mm. I think also it gave me a place to go where I always knew that there was uh, there was that there, there, there was that I could handle all what whatever 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 was thrown at me, so that I didn't have to be vulnerable, didn't have mm. to be intimate, because there was a uh, because I knew that there was a that I, that I, that I would somehow um, survive and find a way, uh, and I think that kept me apart, and 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 I I can relish that that, that mm. there was a mm. um, 
that I could keep my that the, 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 the it's very core. I could keep my keep my, my that that core apart um, from other people and, and from the danger from that, that 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 bit was was protected. And it took a long time, long long time, and and and, and a number of, of other traumas to to start to shed that and start to realize actually that's not a yeah that's not helping me or anybody else what it is is a series of guard towers and barbed mm. wire fences mm. Mm. which I um, which I've built to kind of hide behind and, and I guess all you've got at 9 or 4 or 13 is, is, is the ability to build some, some fences and some defences mm. and hope they withstand the next wave breaking Have you had to go back then to some of those places and and revisit them, you know, where, where you first start putting up the guard towers. I've, I've had to revisit mm. myself. Mm. Um, I, in that, the documentary about Don McCoy, he goes back to the home he grew up in. Mm. <clears throat> and, and there's this lovely young black woman showing him around. And you can see she's thinking, who is this old man that's mm. getting so emotional? Mm. And he's saying to the camera, this house is so powerful in my memory. Mm. The things that happened to me here have never left me. And it was as if he was suddenly a, an 18-year-old man again, boy. Mm. Uh, and he was saying, this is where my father died. This is this is the where the kitchen was. Um, and And... He somehow was given a camera at that at that moment in his life, and he started to photograph uh, the young men that lived around him, and the, there were a lot of um, Afro Caribbean people had moved in, and he photographed them, and that launched him on his career mm. that that has served him all his life. Mm. But you know, I still sometimes dream of the house where my father died. Mm. I, I and, and I've walked past it on a number of occasions. I, I, somehow going back to those places. Uh, I mean, the, the the you know you could use psychological language to kind of reparenting myself mm. through it, but but revisiting mm. myself and and those feelings, mm. which are still really alive in me. The fear of 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 the everything turning mm. on a sixpence, that rug pulling moment, the uh, desire to be in control, mm. to not have that fear anymore, they're all really real. Yeah, I was thinking as as you, as you were speaking, you you said a, a few minutes ago about that running, yeah, running, 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 past. running past things. I, my sense of, of, of what happened to me was that I ran out of childhood mm -hmm. um, as quickly as I possibly could. Yeah. Um, and I, I must have been a really hard person to be friends with, and I, that's probably why I didn't have very many childhood friends, was because I was convinced that being a child was, was, was dangerous. Mm. Um, mm. That I absolutely wasn't going to stick around here for a moment longer. 
God, yeah. And the number of times in my life I've looked round and discovered I'm the youngest person in the room <laughs> because I yeah. have yeah. Uh, surrounded myself and found people to, uh, who are older and, and look like grown-ups and mm-hmm. uh, where, there is, where there is safety. And I think I thought being a, being a child was not a safe thing to be, which is a perfectly logical conclusion if you're of four. Of course it is. And, and that happens. <laughs> um, yeah. And so... Yes, I, 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 I ran out of childhood and as a consequence to to start that process, that, that healing process, to start that grieving process, mm. I've had to had to go back. Mm. And I think and I, and, and, and and not just once but, mm. but again and again to explore different sides of it and different facets and different senses of it. And again, like you were saying earlier on, I find it really easy to talk about in, 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 in the sense of having a conversation. I find it much harder to experience or to re-experience and to find what's at the, at, at, at the source of the feelings. And I, I talk about it till, till the cows come home and, and like you've had that experience of talking to people about it and finding their weeping and, and, and I'm generally feeling okay about this. Mm. It's not the narrative that is, no. that is difficult. It's the experience, mm. and I, and I think it's the it's the not it's the not doing the grief work. It's not doing the grieving, and and I think that's perfectly natural. You know, I, I don't think it's... four years, four year olds, nine year olds, thirteen year olds. I look at my daughter who's four, and I think I, I can't even comprehend how if this was to happen to you, what I would what would you even, say? And you know, and, and I you know being there, right? but I still don't know what on earth I would say or what I would do. Um, those milestones when yeah. you reach. So I'm, <clears throat> I'm two years away from the the, the year of my dad's life mm. when he had his stroke. I'm five years away from when he died. Mm. Uh, I remember when my kids hit the age I was when he yeah. died, being terrified of dying. Yeah, I didn't want them to have the experience that mm. I'd had. Um, so, I I I I think that that. You're so right about the experience is so different to the narrative, mm. and really feeling it is so much harder. Mm. You just made me think of something really powerful, though. You said, you know, being a child is dangerous. Mm. I wanted to get away from that with the idea that being an adult isn't. Mm. <laughs> and it's really dawning on me in my 50s, that being an adult is just yeah. as bloody dangerous. Yeah. And you know, I remember doing spiritual direction with someone who was in their 70s, and, and they were describing all their uncertainties, and I thought, oh, my God, they haven't got it sorted. Mm. This person's 73, and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I almost wanted to run out of the session. Yeah. And, and it's... I think that's part of where my anxieties come from, of thinking no one actually... You know, when you go into A&E, having a, 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 an anxiety episode, they don't know what to do either. I mean, they give you tablets. <clears throat> no one really... We're, none of us really know what we're doing. And the people who think they do are more dangerous than the ones that oh, absolutely. don't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So... This kind of invitation that we are extending to each other, even mm. in this conversation, 
of, okay, how do we explore mm. this uncertainty with any equilibrium? Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And, and what struck me was perhaps, I sort of can't believe quite what I'm going to say, perhaps there, there is a gift in finding that out early. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps there is a. There's something that if you have experienced the seismic nature of, of, mm. of that experience mm. in, in, in mm. early life, mm. there is a there there is a, a gift in that which is perhaps the 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 ability to say yeah we don't know. Um, and there's a lot of people in the world who say they do, mm. and a lot of the, and and, it was a lot of what what our what my attraction for the church was was yeah, it, it was telling me it knew it was telling yeah, me yeah. it knew the answers, and to some extent maybe it did, but but certainly not all of them, but maybe the lesson or maybe the maybe the healing and and the process is, you learn early, that, yeah. life is unsafe. Yeah. That, however well you do at the game of life, however successful you become, however powerful, yeah, yeah, however yeah. rich you become, however happy you become, it's all two or three heartbeats away. Um, this brief candle. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and maybe and maybe that is... Uh, yeah. We've been talking a lot about the sort of... the, 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 the negative impacts, yeah. the difficulties, but maybe actually one of the... Uh, at the at the heart of that, to learn that, to, to, to not even to learn, to experience early. Yeah, to experience that that, that life is so uh, so so unsteady, so shaky, so um, uncountable on. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's a gift to carry into into, into adulthood. And, and I and think it, when I think you know, uh, because my dad was so much older than my mum, mm. it was almost inevitable. But I think that was a bequest to, to me mm. of his life. You know, he'd been through terrible traumas. No wonder he died at sixty-three. Mm. But yeah, I can I can own that 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 gift mm. that's completely shaped my adult life um, for all in all kinds of ways. But I do I do think it's been worth having the conversation about mm. it in order to to. To come to that mm. piece of gold that that says you know okay, it was all of those difficult things, but it's also been a mm. a, a powerful driver mm. for searching and for looking for meaning yeah. and for trying to be seen and trying mm. to be heard and and trying to 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 live that precarious uncertainty mm. and not go for the easy answers yeah just want to explore a little bit more about how both of us missed out somehow on the however inadequate the rituals mm. of of loss mm. uh, and of death um for very valid reasons mm. um but but just I just want to explore a little bit more how how we think 
we've addressed that. Mm. Um, uh, for me, <clears throat> I, I, I was thinking about my mother's funeral. She died in 2006. It was so much, such a good occasion mm. in so many ways. I mean, it was heartbreaking. She died very suddenly, just like my dad. But <clears throat> um, we were able to put into the Catholic Requiem Mass enough of her story and now our story with her. You know, even in the bidding prayers, I remember the kids wrote the bidding prayers mm -hmm. and they said our grandma was uh, not really a, a grandma, she was like a third parent. And I remember thinking, yeah, that was not always very easy either. Yeah. But, but there was enough room for us to tell the story. Mm. Um, which is what I didn't have around my dad. Mm. And in some ways I've been doing it ever since. And so, yeah, I, I just wonder what you think about how we go about creating rituals, in other words, physical manifestations of, of, of what we're going through. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think one of the things I've felt the loss of is having a place to go back to. So my brother was cremated and then his ashes were scattered. <coughs> so there was no... Yeah, my dad was. Uh, There's no gravestone yeah. to go back to or, or even a sort of a place marking the burial site of the ashes or, or anything like that. Um, there was a tree planted at the, at the school we were both going to at the time. And I've, and I've sort of sometimes wondered about going back to that, but, but, never, but, but haven't done so. What I did do a little while ago, um, a few years ago now, was to go back to the house we lived in at the time when he, uh, when he died. And we moved out of there, gosh, no more than two years after he died and, and moved into a big house. There were more of us by then. And really, conscious, wasn't really conscious of going back and, and so not going back with any intention or any purpose. And I felt the need um, to just revisit the, just the street, I mm. didn't go into the house, but just mm. the, mm. the street went and found the house where we'd lived, um, where we were living at that, at that time. Um, and an interesting thing happened, um, I'd always thought I had a memory of, um, as, uh, as Peter was driven away in the ambulance of being, uh, of sitting, of standing in a window and waving goodbye, I think, I think with my, my dad went with him that night, so I was with my mum. And I must have been told that story, that that's yeah, what had yeah. happened. And I thought I had a memory of it. And when I went back to the house, I realised it couldn't be right. Because the layout of, yeah, of, yeah. of the drive and the road meant that that, that, that memory was a was something I had... I, that image was something I'd created from the story rather than actually remembering. Which was an interesting thing about memory and, and how memory gets formed. And... Um, but to go back and to see, just to be in that place with, with the, with the thought of of um, of re of that that we talked talked a little bit before about revisiting, re-experiencing, yeah, yeah, yeah. just to go back to the place where it happened, was was a powerful thing. And then, um, and I think you're absolutely right about the value of of ritual and of and of Missing out, and and you know, I don't know at four and a half what what and what what ritual no. might have even been created if there had been any, 
and I certainly don't think that I that being at the um, at the crematorium would have in any it would have in any way taken would have been it would would have been any way I think easier than 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 not going as it were. I think what's happened subsequently, and I, and I think perhaps we we were talking before about that. Um, that attractiveness of the uh, of of religion of the church in particular, mm-hmm. bound up within those rituals, there is something yeah. important, something <clears throat> a community that marks yeah. high days and low days mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and death days and wedding mm-hmm. days and births and that you know <clears throat> kind of cradle to grave service you get Absolutely. from the catholic church yeah. and, and and not to say that's the only set, set of ritual that that, that that there might be at all it's just that's that's my that's my frame of reference for it um was hugely was was hugely important i think i think ultimately I think the ritual is is really important i think the other thing that's really important is we talked a little bit about this as well is capturing those moments where you see in the life of somebody somebody much younger our kids as we were talking about getting to a stage where we were, it really brought me up short when somebody casually in a conversation just pointed out to me that my daughter was now the same age yeah. that I was when Peter had died uh, and realising Gosh, just how small and just how vulnerable people of that of that oh, yeah. age are, and mm. and then going back and seeing, well, what is that? What's that re-experiencing? What's that journey of of self-parenting mm. that says, mm. gosh, there's a underneath all of that running and all of that fear and all of that anxiety, there's a very very small child. person, very yeah. small child, dealing with a very big thing, yeah. and and faced with a very big thing. And I think it might be the work of a lifetime. I, th- I, I think, think it, it is. I think it is. I, I, I watched a thing called Derry Girls last <laughs> night. <clears throat> it is brilliant. It's so funny. It but, is. but someone had died yeah. and they were at the wake. And the, part of the cleverness of it is that there's this English boy as part of the group. He's a cousin. Yeah. And so he is like saying, what? what, what? It makes them explain what the hell is going on. Yeah. So he's just completely bemused by the fact that they're all standing around the dead body in the open coffin, mm. which is completely Irish. Mm. Uh, and they're all, you know, it's a comedy, but they are all comfortable with it. And they are, I've seen it. And in Wilmer, my wife's tradition, they have an open coffin mm. uh, and people visit the, the body. Um, and I remember when Wilmer's dad died the other the siblings Wilma's siblings weren't very keen on their kids going in but we were keen for our kids to to see Mm. someone dead because I never had and it was so fearful to me Mm. and yet when you do it is still fearful in some ways you know they're gone Mm. um and and it, he became like a kind of pharaoh. People put all kinds of things in his coffin. Mm-hmm. In the end, all the other kids went in as well. And there was some a powerful ritual almost developed around having him in the house. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that's what I mean. We 
we both need provided rituals that yeah. are communal mm. that we build together and individual ones yeah um I, I do really think that that helps with the with 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 that feeling at sea on a sea of troubles mm. and and having no understanding of what's going on around you it it gives you an orientation and you see other adults you see other people around you and you share something together even just holding hands at, at a graveside or I think all of those things, though they're really difficult, are much better than not doing them. Mm. Um, and I think that you talk about reparenting, that that willingness to go uh, go back and and work with yourself mm. as a younger person, that little child that we all still carry around inside mm. us, is really valuable. I agree with all of that. And I think as well, it's really important to participate in the ending. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't participate or didn't wasn't able to fully participate in that ending. And endings have been problematic for me all through Absolutely. my life. Mm. I'm great at beginning things. I'm yeah, great at the too. start. Me too, that's true. Right, right at the very beginning. Mm. Oh, I, I'm your man. Uh, yeah, right yeah. in there and, and full of... Mm. And endings have, until very recently, caused me a great deal yes, of problems. That's very true. And and I think what you're talking about that ritual, whatever it might be, and whether it's religious or non-religious, but but to participate in the ending in of ending. someone's life. And I think you can do that no matter what. Age absolutely, you I absolutely agree. I don't. I don't mean that you need to take four-year-olds to see someone dead no. in a coffin, but maybe you do. I, I think there needs to be. Yeah. Ending. They yeah. need to know this person has gone. Yes. They don't necessarily need to be told where or nope. how or what. It's but they've gone. Yeah. They've really gone. Yeah. And they're okay. Yeah. You know and that's always struck me. When someone's died, they look okay. Yeah. They they and and, and but it's not them. That's no. the other thing. They're not there anymore. Yeah. And that that so somehow. All the dead people I've seen, there's something very sacred about a body. There's a stillness that that implies a solemnity and a and a and an ending and all of those things that are really important to us. Um, so that, yeah, that's an interesting insight that yeah. we don't do. I don't do endings, so yeah, I'm, I'm great at beginnings. Um, and um, I think yeah. And I also don't think necessarily that the, that the there's only you only get one shot at these things. No, I don't. I think I think what's what's crucial if you recognise you've had that experience of, of having missed the ending because of yes. extreme youth or because you yes. weren't at the ending yeah, or you yeah. weren't allowed to participate to find a, an opportunity to, to participate to, to redo the ending as it were to to find your own way Absolutely. of participating. And that's what we should do now. We should. <laughs> we should not be afraid of the ending. <laughs> we'll do it together. Yeah. We'll end together. We're done. Thanks, Adrian. Thank you. <laughs> During the podcast, I said that I would put on the end of it the uh, the poem that I wrote for my dad uh, in my 20s when I was at university. My dad was a naval officer and my mum sold his big medals. Um, I've still got his dress medals, um, but the big ones. And... 
gave me the money and one of the things that I bought with the money was a copy of um, Boris Pasternak's poetry. Boris Pasternak wrote Dr. Zhivago. Um, but but he was also renowned as a great Russian poet. Um, so that's what the line is at the beginning of the poem. And it explores the whole idea of feeling abandoned using the cry of Jesus on the cross. From the medals of my father. From the sale of my late father's medals, I bought a book of Pasternak's poems in which is recorded all our sorrow as now I mouth the words death stole from you. The symbols of victory and defeat that emblazoned your breast, long forgotten, recur in images that prickle like spines. Remembering you pulls reluctantly a plaster from an unhealed wound, and as the warm blood forms bright domed droplets, lurking pain is as sleepless as my nights. Father, why have you forsaken me? I once recall seeing a strange fish, whose healing secretions were only released when it sensed affliction in its offspring. I hope it was a dream of you and me. Father, why have you forsaken me? Aged eleven, I went on holiday, left you in good health, then something awful on my grandmother's lips, he is dead. She and her sister walked me through fields of sugar beet, sweet anaesthetists, then they let me be. Too complacent, I never said goodbye. Now our parting has sculpted my life. Father, why have you forsaken me? Months later, I caught sight of you framed in the door, but the light played charlatan, left me the house empty, bereft of it and you. Father, why have you forsaken me? Death drove a wedge to part us. That wedge now props the door open, which seemed shut and bolted darkness. Yet the poem still speaks of our parting, no continuity, just a torturous gap, a stretch of fallow soil. Lost is the water that splits the seeds open, goading me to grow up to you. Grief is the nurse that takes my temperature, and as I drain the cup you poured for me, its emptiness is a painful preface. My mother sold your medals to forget the past. I bought the poems to rescue it.